right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, got that gorgeous hunk of a man with the middle part today, switching it up on me, Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to be talking about total body training versus isolation training, talking about the benefits from a rehab standpoint, talking about the benefits from a strength and conditioning standpoint, and talking about how to implement that into your programming to best fit your goals of becoming the best combat athlete you can be. So Alex, let's kick it off. Yeah. So um, I think one method of training, and I mean, I think a popularized method is kind of the bodybuilding approach where we get into the weight room and like today is a leg day or today's a back and by day or today's a chest and triceps day. Um, And again, that was popularized through bodybuilding and um, it helps you kind of define and then build up a lot of volume in one specific body part of one specific area. So you would have that focus that I'm going to burn out my chest or I'm going to burn out my tricep in this whole workout. I'm going to spend an hour and 15 minutes just doing chest and tricep. Right. And then you can apply that different days throughout the week. Um, and I just, that's just not the most beneficial way to approach your programming as far as if you want to be an athlete, right? If you want to look huge, you want to, um, start to, I don't know, focus in on building muscle in one specific area and, and simply look good. Like, that's a bona fide approach. Like that's been, uh, done and you can have relative amount of success with that bodybuilding style of approach. And some athletes do need that, right. If we're just, if we have a goal of adding mass or we have a goal of, um, building up specific strength in one area, then that type of workout becomes appropriate. But as an overarching and general strategy, that's not, not where I would go for an athletic development model. Right. But like you said, some athletes do need that. So I work with a couple of the athletes you would say are on the smaller end of their weight class and what you said was a perfect example they need to put on mass or they need to put on mass in specific spots so one of the girls i work with is uh adam weight invicta she soaking wet is 109 pounds so uh, adam weights 105 she needs to put on mass just mass is mass is mass that's when i can implement this isolation training same thing with another guy on our team he's Again, soaking wet 129 and he fights at 125. Same thing. I'm doing a lot of isolation training to add mass to his legs because based off the testing we've done, we found out that that's probably the best place we could put on the mass. But for the most part, I would say 92%, just throwing random numbers out uh, for a very, very strong percentage. So above 85%. Of the people that I train, I take a lot more of a total body approach to trying to generate their athletic qualities because isolation training, what we know about it is it's great for putting on mass. It's great for making you look good. It's not very transferable in the ways of athletic qualities. Absolutely. I mean, when we think about developing power, you think about total body strength or or you think about unilateral uh, strength and power and balance side to side, like um, those in my mind get more valuable when we're talking about an athletic realm. Um, And then one more case, like you were talking about people that maybe should do the body body part isolated training or bodybuilding approach, uh, somebody going up a weight class. Like, I think that's a perfectly bona fide approach, but that, I mean, should take a month, maybe two until you put the weight on until you've built up the muscle. It shouldn't continue to be a six month approach as we're just getting four sets of 10 on dumbbell flies like that. That's again, I mean, here come all the haters. That's not functional. That's not quote unquote uh, useful (laughs) for the sport. 
But when we talk about developing power, when we talk about different strength qualities, there's a, a total body movement approach that I use to this day. You know, I, I look at movement patterns and how we compare those and specific to the sport or just upper body pull or pulling and pushing, um, trying to have a balance or interplay with the two. And then um, once we get more advanced in our training, we just look at the total body and the, the movement pattern, the biodynamics. How is the body moving in the sport? How should the body move during this training period? Yeah. And then it, it goes down to, are we training a part or are we training the whole? Anytime we train a whole, we all like the whole is encompassing all the athletic qualities, whether making them more explosive, rotational power. I care a lot more about the pattern, if you will. Yeah. And then, or we could train the part. In which case we could also go into, and I want to dive in deeper, the rehab sense where sometimes you need to train the part when the part's fucking broken. (laughs) But even when you're training the part, you're still training the part through through a specific or a few specific movement patterns. Like, um, true. Well, it's, it's, yes, but it's implementing, or at least the way I see it, it's say for, and for example, it's a sprained ankle. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to train ankle cars, trying to increase the range of motion all the way through there. I'm going to do some single leg loaded work. That's going to train the stability of the ankle joints. But then I can, once I start stabilizing the ankle, whether that be just single leg hold, single leg catches, I implement then a hip pattern to bring it all full full circle and bring them back to training, which I think is what you're getting at. Absolutely. That, 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 yeah, down the line or towards the end of the the rehab quote unquote our goal is reintegration into a, a full exactly. on performance exactly. model some so. some would say rehab to performance crazy that's i know that's, that's nonsense <laughs> um, uh, but thinking of, thinking about that like it's it's cool to see the progressions because if somebody says walk walks in with a grade two ankle sprain all right so not completely torn but not just a little, like a little boo-boo there's swelling, there's bruising. It sucks. You're going to have to do some joint specific stuff. I know a lot of the Mike Boyle followers hate to hear that and think that everything needs to be a a huge pattern. And that's just not the case. You're going to do your ankle cars. You're going to do isometrics. You're going to do banded work as much as I hate to say it because I fucking hate banded work. Um, All these different little stupid rehab exercises where you're just pumping your foot onto the ground that you can do other things for. Most people are going to do that. But then once you, the, the most complex thing that you can know as a clinician or somebody managing rehab is you need to know when you can progress them. Personally, I feel as though in the healthcare setting, we are afraid to push somebody to failure. We're afraid to potentially re-irritate tissue, not knowing that we're the people they come to, to un-irritate tissue. (laughs) Like if we flare something up, guess what? I'd much rather have them flared up at my office than at home doing stupid shit. So, so that's a paradigm I want to switch moving forward is like, yes, we have to do joint specific stuff, but that cannot be, if somebody comes to you with an ankle sprain that you can't just do joint specific movements for the entirety of their rehab. Like I know a lot of PTs and chiros do, it needs to be a reintegration pattern trying to get the entire system connected. And that's where I love, like I use a lot of the DNS approaches to foot loading or for the same ankle sprain, foot loading, knee loading, and then hip centration all the way through the chain. And how does that integrate with our trunk stabilization and putting the entire, all of the puzzle pieces into one nice little package? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and, 
as you know, like everything to me exists on the spectrum, right? So we want to create stress in that area specifically to strengthen that area. So it's just, just kind of a managing when we're pushing and when we're quote unquote irritating or when we're getting to that stressful place. And then when we're backing off and allowing the kind of adaptation to happen, and it's just uh, maybe a little more isolated scale when we're talking about rehab. But then, like you said, it gets integrated into the whole performance paradigm. And from there, I think we need to kind of address the like clinician, the, and I, I mean, it doesn't really apply to you, Austin, because you do it all. You go from, you know, know. Cut, treating cut a big deal. Shut, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Shut up. Um, you go from treating the acute injury and then you can also work into a whole strength and conditioning program with a lot of your athletes where a lot of the times that's not the same person, right? right. A lot of the times yeah. I go to one place for my acute care for my ankle sprain. And then once I get my ankle sprain manageable and I feel like it's fine, I go back to my strength and conditioning gym or I go back to performing on the mat or whatever to this, this different person, this different um, practitioner. And I think that transition is just a giant gray area that we've Mm -hmm. just kind of left in the wild, wild west. And like, I think, I think that's where strength and conditioning and um, PTs, chiros, everyone can start to widen their perspective and close that off where we're not just, training until, all right, this sprained ankle, you could run on it. You're good. See ya. Um, and then I get to the sports performance facility and it's like, all right, we're cutting today. We're doing this. And it's like, (laughs) Oh, your ankle hurts. Okay. Go sit out or go do a cardio machine. Like there needs to be a little more coverage there for a strength and conditioning coach to have the wherewithal and the knowledge, how to address a specific issue and give either isolated exercises or give, more appropriate within the stage of their rehabilitation, more appropriate exercises. And there needs to be an understanding from the clinician too. It's like, what am I clearing this person for? What am I sending them back to? Can I connect with that strength coach? And and, and can there be a communication there, which is what building fire is made on, right? Is like, how can we increase the communication, talk the same language, get everybody on the same team rather than continue to just fumble around in this gray area and guess as practitioners. Well, dude, and that's, that's exactly what I want out of building a fighter. I don't want to have to do the strength and conditioning. I love it. It's fun. But if I had a network of professionals that I know for a fact are competent with working with my athletes, why, like in all honesty, just like a cost, cost analysis, why am I doing an hour of strength and conditioning when I could do 30 minute appointments and make more money right now? I'm doing it personally, just because there's, there's not, there's not competent people, but there's not a lot of places that can bring everything together. And I feel irresponsible making my fighters pay double to go to somebody else when I can do it all myself. But for the most part, I don't want to like with building a fighter and, and just with this entire movement of professionalism in strength conditioning in healthcare and skill coaches in general, I don't want to make more people that have to do it all. <laughs> right. I want, I, we want to make a team. We want to, we want to make the ability to make a team. You should know enough about everything, but if you like, like, like you talked about last week, I defer on dietetics. Yeah. I literally, I just put a big old X up. If they start talking to me about macros and I say no more talk yeah. to somebody else, I send them right, <laughs> send them right to somebody else. So, yeah. uh, so for me, it's, that's where it's so important that, when we're doing this, we know enough to get by. We know enough of each other's worlds to know that this person's right or this person's wrong. But then from there, that's having that communication, being able to talk, 
hey, this guy's only at 60%. I can't do the strength work anymore. I need you to understand that we can't cut right now. Yeah. That type that type of conversation has to be made. Yeah. And I mean, I think again, once you have a conversation and if like if I have a program for this athlete and I literally just walk in and, and have an appointment or, or talk to this clinician, I'm like, I have this program going for this athlete. Are they cleared to do this or no? Like that's as simple as it needs to be. Right. And so then we can flesh that out and create a relationship out of it, but it doesn't, it's not, it's not gotta be this big burden or this ego driven thing, which I think sometimes gets in the way. Um, it can be just a simple interaction. Well, and for my, for my clinicians out there listening to this, something that I've done in my clinic that's worked really well for me is say, I'm not doing the strength conditioning for that athlete in my paperwork for everybody, not, not just my MMA athletes, but just my general paperwork. I, I have a spot for a release of records and the communication of like, basically to protect myself from HIPAA. And I ask, who is your strength coach and or skill coaches puts their number down and then they can check a box box. Yes or no. Can I talk to them about your health records? And right away that opens up a line of communication. If it's somebody that say, isn't with fight ready and I'm not doing their strength conditioning, they're just coming to me. So say they have again, an ankle injury and they want me to dry needle it and rehab it. As soon as they come in. And if it's somebody that I'm not I don't know. I then call those people as long as they allow me to and say, this is what I saw. This is how I think I can help them. And this is how I need you to modify practice right now. You need to take control as a healthcare person because you're the one that obviously they came to you for a reason. (laughs) They came to you because it hurt, but that conversation isn't had unless you ask for the information first. If you don't know who these people are, you can't communicate with them. And that's half the battle right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to come off wrong and, and think that like that it's the healthcare people that have the the ego. I think strength and conditioning is a world full of egos, right? And so I think a lot of strength and conditioning coaches are, are people that quote unquote get into movement or get into the functional training. They're like I can do it myself. I know what's going on there. I can, yeah. I can you know, assess and, and see that pattern and, and prescribe a rehabilitation program when it's like, that's not your lane, right? That's not yeah. like, once we get into diagnosing something, I'm like, hands off, like you need to talk to somebody else about like right. what's going on. Like I can, I can handle soreness. I can handle like modifying an exercise and, and putting it through the program, but I can't tell you what's actually wrong. And if you've had this prolonged injury, I can't um, prescribe you a, a week's long plan to fix that area. Best I can do is work around it and make it tolerable. Dude, that's, and that's something that I've loved. That's a high point that I think that the FMS and SFMA protocol has brought into place where if you score a zero, which in FMS that in zero, it's zero to three in FS or in FMS terms, if you score a zero, then you immediately need to go to a healthcare practitioner. That's what it says in the actual, the actual like little rule book because a zero means you have pain with that given movement. If you have pain that immediately punts you to somebody that knows how to handle a healthcare type situation or pain, painful situation. And I think that's something that they've done very positively for the entire community in general. No, I totally agree. Um, But like like I said, I think strength conditioning coaches get caught up in their own own world because we spend so much time trying to be the guy that can, that can do it. They can do it all that, that has this thing that, um, I mean, you have to brand yourself and you have to market yourself, but at times it's just not, not appropriate. And it's, it's not in the athlete's best interest. And I think, um, we need to recognize it's not that. cost effective for you. It's not yeah. like for me, like yeah, <laughs> I am absolutely. that guy right now. It's not cost effective. Yeah. Like, 
hundred percent, hundred percent. All right. How do we get here from body part training? Dude, um, I was just thinking that as you were saying, I'm like, I don't even know how we go on these rambles. Yeah. Right. But I don't know, man, <laughs> every once in a while is I'm just going to scale back and get real, real bro -y. Um, I don't know. Every once in a while, I, I definitely want to get on a body part, bodybuilding type of specific workout. I don't know. You feel good. Um, it's relative for me. It's relatively mindless. I, I struggle writing my own programs. So it's, it's, it's a little easier to walk in just with an idea and then make it up as you go. Right. Um, yeah. but I mean, that's not an approach that you should take professionally with your athletes. Bro. I, I just started up I say started up. I did it literally once and I'm probably not going to do it again. Uh, German volume training. Oh my God. Yeah. No shit. You're not bench doing press. It again. <laughs> no, you're not doing it again. I had I 10 had, by 10. Oh Let's God. go. Yeah. There's a, Oh man, there's time place for that. <laughs> not. Um, <laughs> remember when we did that in January during our quote unquote overload period uh, at UWL, we would, I, I didn't do it because I thought it looked stupid. <laughs> we had a two-hour wrestling practice in the morning right after. We literally walked from the wrestling room to the weight room, do the 10 by 10 on whatever it was, back squat or deadlift or, or, or whatever, and uh, then and then go home for three hours and then come back for another practice at three. Yeah. No, that was you and Thule. <laughs> Shout out to Zach Thule. I saw that, and I'm like, fuck that. <laughs> hey, man, it was, it was the strength and conditioning coach's recommendation. So Yeah. <laughs> but, um, oh, oh well <laughs> yeah but i mean that's another consideration with the body part individual program is that like the volume is crazy high right and it has to be that way to create mass and to uh create enough stress to incur hypertrophy even though we know hypertrophy occurs whether you're at low reps or high reps it just happens differently at each um but with the low um low weight high rep type of variable we need a lot of volume in that and then that's also just more stress on the athlete that's already probably rolling four times a week hitting mitts two times and sparring twice like mm -hmm. so that's a, a consideration into metabolic stress and just overall general readiness um to perform yeah um trying to bring it back to the main topic of total body versus <laughs> isolated movements um thinking about total body movements, that's like, like I've said previously in this podcast, that's where we get into patterns and that's where we get to start looking at the body as a whole, even though we're going to do these different patterns and it say, say you are working with a recreational combat sports population. I just had this talk recently um, with, with a gym down here. If you're program, if you're programming exercises for just gen pop, or just people that are weekend weekend warriors, your typical blue belts. Mm -hmm. That's where I bring in Dan John's approach. The seven seven movement patterns, the push pull squat, hinge, carry, and then sometimes people add in lunge as well. I like adding lunge in because I think it adds in the single leg component. But all of those are just primal movement patterns that if you have, one, let's say, five of seven of those in each workout that you do, and you're hitting every one of those categories at least twice a week, all of your athletes are going to be stronger, more robust, get injured less. And guess what? For the gym owners out there, they're probably going to stay on your mats more and not put their actual memberships on furlough or put their memberships on any sort of like a hold because they hurt their knee, because they hurt their shoulder. If you're doing these different patterns and you're doing them with your jujitsu athletes and recommending them two to three times a week, that's going to make them more robust. And we all know stronger people get hurt less and are just 
more generally useful for society. <laughs> close. Was that Ripito? Is that Ripito? That was close. That was close. Um, I was cl- I was close. Yeah. yeah. Who was it though? Is that Ripito? Yeah, it is Ripito. But you, yes. You Stronger people are of more use in general and harder to kill. Well, yeah, I was trying to say get injured less. I was, I was making my point, but Para- um, paraphrasing. But no, I love that that approach too. It's like keep it simple, right? And I think that we can do that in a even in a professional um, athlete setting or when we're working with people. Like if we keep our core of our program as far as getting strong, simple. Um, then I think we're going to see a lot more results Then later on there's time for complexity and there's time for the, the intricacies of this person needs to get better at this pattern and, and things like that. But I think starting from a simple basis will always ensure that we hit those check marks and, and we get through those, those bottom few rungs of strength of, can we do this pattern? Are they stable? Um, and like you said, the seven movement patterns, but check those boxes, make sure we hit them early because then you don't want to have to, that to be a, an issue when we're trying to peak or when we're trying to implement a specific type of exercise. Well, and that's why for me personally, almost every GPP program that I, I build out, I mean, outside of if there's injury present as well, it, just, it basically just mimics those seven movement patterns. Mm-hmm. And then adds in, maybe there's an emphasis on this athlete needs to improve this part of that. This is where I work on my deficiencies. We've had a whole talk about this, mm-hmm. but GPP for me, it's just seven primal movement patterns with an emphasis on the objective measures that we need to improve. That's, yep. that's literally it. Whether that be a whole bunch of sled work, whether that be a whole bunch of carries, like all of those patterns are just going to make them overall healthier overall stronger and overall for the most part a better human and athlete yeah and i think what's an interesting thought about gpp for me is we we think about like general physical preparation but like the general nature of it can include some specific strength and weaknesses as well right it's not just general meaning nothing is going to apply to this person it's general in meaning that it's going to encompass everything general and specific about this person so um that's an idea to keep into your gpp program is like we can have one day to work on a weakness or we can have one day to just generally hit this this specific thing um but what I was thinking on along the lines of is when you get into training, um, I guess you're high level MMA guys, Austin, and you start to think about how much mm-hmm. are you using, we talked about patterning. And when I think about patterning, I kind of think of the anatomy trains and the, uh, mm-hmm. fascial matrix and system. How much are you using that? How much are you integrating that into your strength conditioning? Um, so just like last week, it depends. My mm-hmm. favorite answer. I you hate that answer. Don't. Yeah. I, was gonna say, I you say hate that answer. We always say it. You hate it. <laughs> um, don't say we, cause he's been here once. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's fair. That's fair. Call it with the we shit. Both you teaming up on me. <laughs> um, that's the but, other thing I'm not a fan on of. Just side note is like when when you have a, a sole proprietorship or not even sole proprietorship, you just own your business outright, and you're the only yeah. person in it. And then you start talking we like like it's you <laughs> and the business, or like yeah. you and your whole team of people, even though you're the only employee of the business. Like I don't know, fake. Dude, I do that all the time fake the the royal we <laughs> yeah um but so i do i do implement that a fair amount um i actually bring that 
I have my own little spin off of Dan John stuff and the primal movement patterns that I'm going to say this and I, I want to gag saying it, but that I think Naughty Aguilar did right with functional patterns because <laughs> I fucking hate that guy. He's the worst, but he actually made a pretty decent product, unfortunately. Um, but when you, when you talk about the functional patterns, which is directly based around anatomy trains and based around yeah. that. I think you also need to add in rotational development and sling development into the primal movement patterns. So that's where I do those seven. And then I also add in sling training, whether that be through DNS positionals, whether that be through rotational plane movements or transverse plane movements, um, whether that be anti-rotation. But typically when I think about sling stuff, I do that as an adjunct to a major lift. So say I'm doing trap bar deadlifts. And then I do after that, I do, let's say a pulley push pull where they're learning how to load their sling or load and then unload their slings and trying to pair up my strength work with that patterning, if you will, to make your brain realize, Hey, I just used my glutes. And then guess what? I get to use my glutes in the entire posterior oblique chain, which is kind of cool. Um, And then, or as a part of my warmups. So there's one that I love doing is, uh, all, all of my guys' favorites. It's a burner. It's just an anterior oblique sling, uh, activation with yoga ball. So basically you're in a dead bug position, your say right arm and left knee are trying to squish a yoga ball in between each other for an eight, eight to 10 seconds. But normally people can't go past eight and eight second hold while your other arm and leg are outstretched. Like you're doing a dead bug. And what that does is it can, it can, it makes basically a diagonal contraction through your anterior oblique sling from your rec fem on your left side to your pec and your delt on your right side and everything in between, which just fires them up. If I am adding in any major rotational based training. So I do that prior to, if I do any sort of rotational med ball work, that's typically going to be something that I throw in. Um, there's also another one not to get too exercise specific. Cause these are just e- examples. They're not mm-hmm. what you should do for everything. Obviously I'm talking about them, not you, you know, those, um, <laughs> but you can hold a dead bug and you got a heavy ass kettlebell. So sh- fuck it. The biggest one you got, and you're holding a dead bug and with your arm up legs, both up in the air, you're trying to then move the, the, de- or the kettlebell is above your head. It's, or, uh, on the ground above your head. So you can't lift it with your shoulder mm-hmm. and you're trying to bring your hand towards your opposite side knee. So contracting from the top end to the anterior of the anterior oblique sling, trying to proximally locate towards the hip, but you can't move your arm because it's hundred pounds, keeping your mm-hmm. arm straight. So that's a great way to just fry that anterior oblique sling, but not as intensely as if you're working both sides in a similar fashion. So it's a good way to progress them to learning how to use their anterior oblique sling, as well as a good way to add in the ice, like an isometric at the end range mm-hmm. of it. So it increases pliability as well as contractability by doing it from a pli- pliable state. No, I like that. I like that. I like, I mean, when I think about sling training, when I think about getting into a little bit more of those rotational patterns or using the posterior anterior slings, um, what I really like about them is I like that it gets us out of our kind of rigid strength and conditioning. Like you have to hold your body in this position to move, right? So much of strength and conditioning is lock this position, create really a uh, really rigid frame and be stable there and then move the load. And I think that's, that has, again, everything has its place. Everything has, has its play, um, has its role to play when we need to get stronger. And when we're doing a deadlift, I don't want you flowy and moving, right? I want you rigid and I want you to be able to build up the intradominal pressure and blah, blah, blah. 
but I like it because it gets the athletes to move and it gets you to feel the load on the, on the sling. You get to feel the weight shifting back. Like one of my number one things, and, and this is a, a shift in mindset for a lot of my athletes is when we're doing like a med ball side toss, just from an athletic stance and we're kind of scoop thrown in the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Push and rotate back into your glute and you feel a stretch, right? Like, oh amazing like when you stretch something your, your body works through the stretch shortening cycle and your sling expands and it wants to retract even faster like um i do that with like rotational lunging movements um we were talking the other day about like a maxi lunge um, yep. those type of things like those just get athletes to move athletically and i'm a big fan of those things rather than this the body part isolation training that promotes locking everything down and thinking about a single anatomical muscle to burn out or to get bigger like again that that training goes back to the sport of bodybuilding is like we i need a bigger rear delt i'm going to lock everything in lay flat on this bench and do reverse flies right um yep. because that burns out the specific muscle and that's probably good for a bodybuilding competition but doing that with nothing else activated is unlike sport. It is not, um, not co-contraction. It's not fluid movement. It's not stability. It's not, um, having to use active versus passive ranges of motion. It's, um, it's just in my book, a little less athletic and a little more blocky. Yeah, no. And I think the two biggest places that I think kind of get neglected in body part specific training are going to be the scapulothoracic joints. Uh, so the joint we talked about in our Instagram post, uh, which was the shoulder blade, basically what it is, it's the shoulder blade, collarbone, and how the shoulder blade interacts and connects with the rib cage. Um, because in isolation training, like Alex is saying, every single part, every single isolation exercise, lock the lats in place, screw them in, da, 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 da. And so you can't actually protract retract. That's where we add in our cars. That's where we are adding in our rotational exercises. It's so important because as you know, I think a good example of being able to protract and retract is Sean O'Malley. He's so lanky. He's able to protract to add another about an inch to his punch. And I think that's why he's so sneaky with how he lands his punches because he's not a strong dude. I mean, he's strong, he's stronger than he used to be, but he's not a, like a physical specimen, but what he has is timing and what he has is range. And he knows how to use his range. Well, if you lock your shoulder blades in during every exercise you do that eliminates that forward translation, that rolling effect that you need to have a snappy to, to have a snappy hook and anything at all where you need to, transmit force you need that protraction retraction the other place that i feel like gets kind of neglected in isolation training is going to be the spine so the spot the spine in general we need to be able to load that right if we're doing isolation training so whether we're doing arms legs whatever it may be i know a lot of isolation training occurs with machines, the less mach- or the less load on the spine. So think about a carries, think about axial load from the like back squat, uh, thinking about just holding any weight at all and walking with it. Mm-hmm. That loads the spine. And if we're yeah. doing just machines, so we're sitting down doing bicep curls, we're doing hamstring curl machine, we're not actually activating our trunk. We're not activating anything from the thoracic spine to the lumbar spine in any beneficial way. And that's almost a waste, if you will. That's a waste of exercising because why aren't you using that time to also get the co-contraction of the trunk and focus on bracing, which is how you're going to use that in your fight. 
that's how you're going to use that in competition and how you're going to use that as you age and you're 80 and you got to sit on the toilet, take a shit. Right. Like you need to know how to brace. So why aren't you training this in all of your training? Yeah. And I think, I think one other, and and this might be the biggest area for me that I think we leave out when we talk about like going to do a back and a by day or or going to do one specific isolated training is total body power. Like there's nothing more athletic than utilizing your whole body to throw a punch, to throw a med ball, to jump, to, um, move in a fast manner and move, um, a lot of weight that way. Like it's hard to fit both models into one and I'm sure you can do your power block and then some of your isolated training, which is what I would advocate. Um, in my program, like, I mean, you can pick out any day of any week for any athlete. There's probably one or two specific isolated muscular movements or isolated joint movements. But that's based on the the movement screen that we've done and the uh, weaknesses that we've identified. This athlete doesn't have enough ankle dorsiflexion, so we're going to put a half kneeling um, ankle mobility, or we're going to. I was just supposed to say, or they just want to have a bro day. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> yeah. honestly, sometimes athletes need that. You got to break up the monotony. If they're not in camp, sometimes I, like if if that athlete's not in camp, Saturday is like my day. Like if you're not in camp, fuck it. Let's do max out on curls. I don't the, give a shit. The younger the athlete, the more of those that you need. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've heard. <laughs> keeping high school, <laughs> keeping high schoolers involved mentally is is always going to include some type of upper body burnout. Uh, it would yeah. seem. But well, and yeah, before you before you jump on your point and you could also add isolation training as a part of conjugate training yeah not to not to implement a whole bunch or all the time but that's just a different stimulus that you could add into the body that the brain's going to have like oh what the fuck is this and then it's going to have a different adaptation potentially a stronger adaptation and then the next time you just go back to your patterning it's not enough to make a huge change but it's enough to make the brain kind of second guess what it's doing which is going to increase adaptation well i mean we look at a a typical day or typically daily undulating model and like one of the main stressors that we put in that and and to me undulating is like a conjugate approach where we have different stresses on each day except those the stresses are less dynamically different right yeah. and under the undulating day was like maybe we'll do a similar movement or similar exercise we're just gonna in rather than focus on the weight on the bar we're gonna focus on uh the speed of the movement right so it's just a little bit less contrast than a conjugate but in a daily undulating model volume is almost always one of the the daily focus right mm-hmm. and that's um i got that a lot from like a, a caldeets model where he changed and went from a moderate stress on monday and then you got your intensity stress on a wednesday and then friday is your volume day so that your athletes have time to recover back from monday um and so it, bodybuilding and upper body pumps and everything like that fit perfectly on a Friday for a collegiate football team. And they suit your needs as far as being able to recover from the volume over the weekend. No. Yeah. That's that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was trying to think of something to say to that. And I'm like, no, that was good. Yeah. I I mean, I hope most of what I say is intelligent. Um, no, and I like, you could also bring in, not just because this is basically turned into a programming one. Uh, you could also, something I've been toying with is you could add in ISOs. So Caldeets also 
spinning off that has his triphasic approach, right? That's what he's known for. That's what he made popular. Um, I feel like that's underutilized as a type of conjugate training, adding in isometrics, right? Like I just had yeah. this, I just said, I just had this talk with one of uh, uh, my, one of my linemen that I work with and he, our goal with him is to put on healthily around seven pounds in the off season. Now that that's a good realistic goal. And so he's telling me what he's been doing and it's the entire season is anywhere between one and three reps. He hasn't gone over three reps in anything that wasn't a isolation based exercise. Yeah. I'm like, well, fuck it. (laughs) Let's do volume. So in the first two weeks of working out with me, he did more reps in the first two weeks than he did his entire 17 week season with Falcons. Yeah. So, but then I was talking with him and something I'm going to start implementing more is like, why don't we add any isometric component? Because I know you guys aren't doing any sort of tempo. You don't like you're, I know you're just doing explosive based movements. And so tempo, whether that be with the eccentric or what I'm advocating for is the isometric at the bottom, that could be a different stressor that affects the muscle in a different way, but cause and could potentially cause a greater adaptation if it's not a trained quality that the athlete has. Well, I that's, mean, yeah, that, that's your, your key principle of variation right there. It's like, yeah, you get better by varying the stimulus, regardless if it's changing to an isometric or changing to volume or changing to this, it's changing period. Right. But I just, I feel like it's in, in my circles, I feel like it's underutilized as everybody just, they just think, oh, all right, we're we're going to do conjugate. One day is going to be power. One day is going to be strength. One day is going to be endurance. And that's just what people think. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and they don't and I think, think within that. Yeah. And, and I mean, as long as we're on the programming thing, it's like, I think that's, I mean, there, that's your danger with any ideology, right? Is like, I mean, yeah. you get, you get the same Caldez fanatics that are, that are, we need to do um, eccentric, isometric, concentric movement, and then these oscillatory isometrics. And we need to do just those four phases year round. And like, and that's boneheaded as well, if you will. Before I get off of that, what the fuck? Oscillatory isometrics. What a cro- what a crock of shit. I mean, something, <laughs> man. It's something. I, I I appreciate a lot of Caldiz's ideas. I just think uh, some of them fail in execution. And I mean, whether that's him or his, his followers, again, like he's got a hardcore fan base. Um, but any, anytime we've said this a million times, anytime you buy in fully to one ideology and make that your, your cross to bear that that's where you get in trouble as you're not yeah. open to new ideas and you're not, uh, creating a genuine best picture for an athlete, but, um, but yeah, some good, some yeah, bad. I, I just think of the body bar when I, think <laughs> that. honestly, that's the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm like, Oh, that thing is so useless for the most part. It's great for like two things. It's not worth the money. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> Exercise equipment. We talked about that one on a few previous podcasts too. And that yeah. stuff is stupid expensive. <laughs> um, but I mean, I guess body part training, it is what it is. And it's got useful places to be, but not everywhere all the time. And not, not anywhere most of the time, I would say. Yeah. It's just a part of the equation. If that's all you're doing, if you're reading men's fitness and then doing that lift and you want to be a combat athlete of any kind, I think you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you look at most athletes in MMA and it's not the, the locked up super jacked people that are winning the fights either, right? It's people that can move and people that have flow and timing and precision um, rather than just are yoked out of their mind. Fuck it. I'd, I would, honestly, I'd rather you start break dancing than just to, to, to lift. That would be your lifting. You're working out than right. to do isolation training. All right, Joe Rogan. No, that, I was thinking about Izzy, <laughs> no, but yes, I'm that was, 
that was recent. I, I remember listening to that recently, but no, but, uh, just think, thinking about moving your body. That would be so much better for you. No, I, I totally agree. I mean, there's a reason why offensive linemen NFL do ballet, right. Or, um, yeah. I mean, Roman wrestling, right. There's a huge crossover between just learning to move and manipulate body weight, whether it's your own or somebody else's. I think that's why I think every athlete, regardless of whatever sport you think you want to specialize in, especially if it's going to be a contact sport, you should wrestle. Dude. Yeah. I, I, this is so far off of the topic we've been fucking talking about, but I don't care. Um, no, I have, I have this plan that if I could make a, a super athlete, they would start in gymnastics. Then they would go to, uh, after gymnastics, you'd go to wrestling and try it. If you don't like it, that's fine. Not a big deal, but you got to try it. Um, uh, and then doing that, hopefully for like two years, two or three years, gymnastics for two or three years. And right around then, then they start picking up whatever ball sports, racket sports you want to try. But if mm-hmm. you can manipulate your own body, then you can manipulate another person's body that sets you up for success in literally everything that you do. And then if you also teach them at the, if you increase their training age and teach them from an early age movement patterns, not load, I'm not fucking advocating for putting a bar on your six-year-old's back, calm down people, <laughs> but but actually just, Hey, like when they're joking around doing like digging sand being like, Hey, maybe don't just go on your toes the entire time. <laughs> yeah. Like shit it's like just random shit like that. That's going to make them so much better at using their entire system. Well, you know, it's good motivation for you, Austin, is that, uh, this, the super kid, um, where they're going to get most of their movement patterns is from how you move or whoever they're around the most moves. So Perfect. Uh, clean up so, your movement patterns a little bit. Oh, huh? I am great. My <laughs> movement patterns are flawless. Flawless. He says, why do you think all the videos demonstrating are me? <laughs> God, somebody's got an ego. I just can't lift heavy things. That's the trick I play with people. It's the, all the mobility stuff. I'm just naturally more than this way. I can still do the splits, bro. Uh, I used to be able to, I can get kind of close now, but not not as much as when I was rolling and into it, but uh, one day I'll get back to being an athlete. That's uh, that's one of the ultimate goals. True. And I'm not going to get there doing bodybuilding four days a week, um, upper body twice, back once, stuff like that. So there's your I, circle for body, uh, body training. I am, but I guess we're just different people. <laughs> Everybody, right. yeah. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, I'm going to end it. So get yeah. your last jab in. And no, I was, I was going to say nothing, but (laughs) all right, y'all. So as always, we appreciate y'all listening. If you want to let us talk to more people. So we become friends with your friends, like share, subscribe, tell your best buddy about our podcast. The more people we get to talk to, the more fun it is for us, but as well as the more we can spread all the way across the globe and keep helping combat athletes, coaches, physicians and strength coaches um if you get in contact with us all our stuff's in the show notes you know that by now um this is dr austin shane alex friedman and we are out